All right. Well, this is a relevant topic and a somewhat controversial topic, though I am intending this morning to address the topic in a fairly non-combative and non-controversial way. I did, however, bring with me a couple of props. I don't normally do this, but it just felt relevant this morning. Somebody gave me, this was a couple months ago, but somebody gave me a Dr. Fauci doll. And um, I've left him in the box for his protection because he... He has the mask, but he also has that nice pane of plexiglass, so I feel like he's... uh, But it just seemed appropriate for him to be here for this particular talk this morning. Okay. And then I I also... Somebody gave me this a couple years ago. I also brought a Martin Luther bobblehead. And uh, you might be wondering why I brought a Martin Luther bobblehead. What does he have to do with our topic today? As I was working through this material, and again, it's not too late to leave after I say this, um, I have 10 categories that we're going to be talking through this morning. But as I put together all of the different statements and comments, I got right up to 96. So then I combined one of them. So now I have 95 theses this morning. So Martin Luther is here to represent the 95 theses. And I asked him if he thought it was a good idea. And he said, yes. So I'll leave him out. I, uh, he's going to fall. All right. A little bit more serious this morning. It was really just a year ago. It was a year ago this coming week on July 24th, 2020, that the elders of Grace Community Church released a statement that Christ, not Caesar, is the head of the church. It was that statement one year ago that then marked the beginning of Grace Community Church publicly opening its doors in spite of and in violation of some of the health restrictions and orders that were in place, orders that had been put in place by the governor of California and also by the health department of Los Angeles County. It's pretty well known what it is that our church did, but a question that I find myself answering as an elder here at the church and also as one who interacts with seminary alumni all around the world is, Why did Grace Church take the stand that it took? And I think that answer has already been given not only in that statement, but also in a number of the messages that Pastor John has given over this last year. But my goal this morning is to essentially come along and wrap my arms, or at least I'm going to attempt to, wrap my arms around that information and distill it for you in a way that I hope is helpful. So this seminar this morning is intending to answer the question, why? We all know what Grace Church did, but why did we take the stand that we took? Is it a biblical stand for our church to be in violation of certain health orders in light of passages like Romans 13, 1-7, and of course, 1 Peter 2, Titus 3, 
these are passages that instruct Christians to be in submission to the government. So that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. The way that I've organized the material is under 10 categories, which really splits into two halves. The first is biblical principles, and the second is categories of biblical exceptions, and I have five of each. So five biblical principles and five biblical exceptions. And I do actually have 95 points, and they are numbered. So as we go through, you will know how close to the end we are based on what number we're at. And I stand with Luther. Okay, five biblical principles. The first principle that I think is really important to establish, and in this first half of my lecture as I establish these biblical principles, I don't think I'm going to be saying anything that is really all that controversial. In fact, my goal this morning is to walk through the biblical text so that at the end of it, I hope that you're convinced. I certainly was convinced in my study that the elders of Grace Church We're operating on clear biblical principles, and I want to share those principles with you this morning. So the first of those is the principle of supreme allegiance, the principle of supreme allegiance, which is this idea that we recognize the supremacy of Christ as the head of the church. Our ultimate allegiance is to him. And so when God and government collide... We must obey Christ rather than men. So let's talk about some of the subpoints underneath that big principle. First, the Christian worldview begins with a commitment to the lordship of Jesus Christ, right? If you're a Christian, you have confessed Christ as Lord, Romans 10, 9. And in fact, that verse was in contrast to the typical ancient Roman confession of Caesar as Lord. Christians are those who no longer proclaim Caesar as Lord. They declare Christ as Lord. He is our master and our sovereign. So we recognize then secondly that the lordship of Christ extends over all creation, over all nations, over the church. He is the Lord and head of the church and over the life of every individual believer. And there are many passages that we could look at that would detail that truth. One of my favorite is from Romans chapter 14, where Paul says, For not one of us lives for himself, and no one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. And that's what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is a follower of Jesus Christ. And so our supreme allegiance belongs to him. Because the Lord Jesus is our highest authority, we submit to him first and foremost above any other authority. And again, this is... Very fundamental truth, but it's truth that's important to establish in a conversation like the conversation we're having today. So number four, we are 
as followers of Christ, citizens of his kingdom. He is our king, and we are citizens of his kingdom. We are citizens of heaven, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. This world is not our home. In fact, right, 1 John chapter 2, we are rejecting the things of the world, the lusts of the world. We are sojourners and strangers in this world because this world is not our home. And I do think that's an important point to remind American Christians of because sometimes I think we get so excited about the political side of being a citizen of the United States that we sometimes forget that we are first and foremost Christians and only secondly Americans. We are citizens of heaven first and foremost. Uh, Philippians chapter 3 is that great passage where Paul, of course, makes that um, statement that our citizenship is in heaven. So number five, throughout church history, believers have applied this principle that Christ alone is the head of the church and he is Lord over all to justify protest and civil disobedience when civil government interferes in church matters. And We certainly could go through numerous examples in church history where this has been the case. In fact, the Protestant movement, uh, even the forerunners to the Reformation, starting with the Waldensian movement, there was a a man named Peter Valdo who was told by, in that case, the Pope and papal authority that he was not allowed to preach, and he determined that God had called him to preach, and so he defied that authority, actually on the basis of Acts 5.29, We must obey God rather than men. That commitment to the authority of Christ over the authority of either the church or the state is what marked then the Protestant movement moving forward. Guys like John Huss, who wrote a book in which he made the audacious claim that Christ alone is the head of the church, and then to the Protestant movement more specifically. In fact, the word Protestant comes from a document that was written Uh, during Martin Luther's lifetime, but a little after the 95 Theses, called The Protestation of Spire, in which, um, actually it was shortly after Luther's death, as I remember, they wrote The Protestation of Spire, but it was the Holy Roman Empire, which was the government at the time, that was seeking to uh, stamp out the Protestant movement, and these pastors got together and said, no, the state doesn't have the right to tell us what to believe, or how to preach in our churches. And so they protested against that governmental interference. So the word Protestant itself has inherent in it this notion that as Christians, uh, we submit to the authority of Christ above the authority of the government. And if the government seeks to usurp that authority, then we will protest. Number six, one day we will give an account to Christ. So he is not only our supreme allegiance, he also is our supreme accountability. He's both our highest authority and our ultimate accountability, and his measure of success is faithfulness to him. And even if we were to go back to Romans 14, verse 12, we see in that passage that Paul says that each one of us must give an account of himself to God. Or 2 Corinthians Uh, 5.10, where 
uh, Paul says that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And of course, Matthew 25 is where Jesus tells that parable of the king who had his servants, and he said to the servants who were faithful, you have done well. He says, well done, my good and faithful servant. So when we think about our responsibility as citizens of a nation on this earth, but ultimately citizens of heaven, we measure our decisions on the basis of whether or not we're being faithful to what Christ calls us to do. Number seven, because our supreme allegiance belongs to Christ, his word is our highest authority. Our response to governing officials flows from the truth of divine revelation, which is found on the pages of scripture. And this again is that core Protestant principle, because Christ is the head of the church, his word is the authority for the church. It's the doctrine of sola scriptura, that scripture alone is our highest authority. Again, very fundamental, very basic, but if we don't establish the word of Christ and the authority of Christ as our starting point, we're likely to go astray in thinking biblically about how to respond to government. That brings us to a second big principle. So first principle, supreme allegiance. Our supreme allegiance belongs to Christ. Secondly, sovereign appointment, the principle of sovereign appointment. We recognize that all human authority is delegated by God, who is sovereign over all rulers and kingdoms. So this is just the recognition that government exists because God ordained it. So, in our list of 95, here number eight, God is the supreme authority over the entire universe. No other authority exists without his express permission and sovereign determination. So, no one is in power unless God allowed them to be in power, even if some of us might feel like elections have been stolen Just remember that the word election in the Bible refers to God choosing, not us choosing. All right. We'll put Fauci back below here. Okay. So number nine, God gave human beings authority to rule over the earth. If you look at Genesis chapter one, God uh, delegates authority over, the, over this world, over the creation on this planet to mankind. And this really sets the foundation for all human government. So government is the delegation of authority from God to man. Oh. PowerPoint skipped a little bit. There we go. Number 10. Every human government is given its authority by God. And in fact, the book of Daniel is very explicit in this. You can see all those references there. Uh, God establishes the temporal and geographical extent of every human governing authority. In fact, in Acts 17, Paul at Mars Hill says explicitly that God has determined the times and the boundaries of man's inhabitation. Number 11, those in government are accountable to God for how they exercise the authority that he has given to them. Daniel 4 was Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man of his lifetime, being humbled by God. And of course, uh, for seven years, 
really sent into a divine exile because of his wickedness and pride. Number 12, God has designed the proper role for government, and that role primarily consists of promoting good and protecting the righteous while preventing evil and punishing the wicked. And we will look at Romans 13 a little bit more in depth here in a moment, but it's very clear in Romans 13 that God has designed government to be a minister of good. My computer is uh, being, it's lagging just a little bit, so. (laughs) Uh, Number 13. I don't know, maybe my computer's trying to imitate bureaucracy. It's just being a little slow. (laughs) Number 13. Government has the right to collect taxes to accomplish its God-given purpose, and Christians are required to pay taxes. So if you were here this morning hoping that the conclusion of this would be that you don't have to pay taxes, I have bad news for you. You do have to pay your taxes. When government abuses its power, number 14, using its authority in ways that are outside of its God-designed purpose, it does so in violation of God's law, and those in positions of civil authority are not above the law of God. And again, they will give an account to God for the authority, how they stewarded that authority, the authority that they were given by him. Okay, so that's the the principle of sovereign appointment, that God appoints governors and all who are in positions of civil authority, and that those in those positions are stewards of that authority and accountable to God. Brings us to a third, a third principle. I call this the principle of spheres of authority, principle of spheres of authority, and it is this. God has set boundaries of jurisdiction for both the secular, that's government, and the sacred, which is the church, two different realms. Civic rulers do not have authority over the worship, doctrine, or polity of the church. It is outside of their God-given jurisdiction. In the same way that pastors don't have authority over civil matters, Governors and elected officials, civil leaders, do not have authority over ecclesiastical matters. Ecclesiastical is a fancy word for the sacred, the spiritual, things that pertain to the life of the church. So number 15 in our list, the Lord Jesus designated different spheres of authority, the secular and the sacred, when he taught his disciples to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to render to God the things that are God's. And that's a very important passage in Matthew chapter 22, where Jesus designates those two different realms or spheres of authority. In Romans 13 verse 7, the apostle Paul echoes that same principle. And I think that's really important to understand that in Romans 13, Paul himself seems to be reflecting that same division because he refers back to Matthew 22:21, when he uses the same Greek word for render, render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, 
and honor to whom honor. So even the Apostle Paul, in writing what he wrote in Romans 13, recognizes that we render within the civil realm what is appropriate to those civil leaders, but that is distinct from the sacred or spiritual realm of the church. I think Paul makes that point explicit in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where he applies this principle to the believers in Corinth who were taking each other to court over disputes that they were having internally. And Paul says, no, 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 don't take your issues with fellow believers to a secular law court. You should figure all this out within the context of the church. And so that's a very practical application of the distinction between the secular and the sacred and the reality that believers, um, that there is a distinction for believers between those realms or spheres of authority. All right, in addition to the state and the church, God has also ordained the family as a societal structure designated to promote good and to curtail wickedness. And these structures, the government, along with the police, and then the church, and then the family, these structures were designed by God to uphold the fabric of society. And so we might conclude then that citizens are to submit to the government in civil matters, Children are to submit to parents in family matters. I know some of you are thinking the 1990s called and they want their television show back. (laughs) Sorry, that's a family matters joke. And believers are to submit to their elders in sacred, spiritual, ecclesiastical matters. And Hebrews 13 is very clear on that. Talking to Christians, the author of Hebrews says, Obey your leaders in the church and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this, is, uh, for this would be unprofitable for you. So there is in the New Testament this expectation that God has ordained these different structures. And while there may be a little bit of overlap in certain areas, the lane lines are fairly clear. For civil matters, God has ordained government. For things that happen in the home, the rearing of children, God has ordained the family. And for things that happen in the church, the worship, the doctrine, the polity of the church, God has established elders and pastors. So within each of these then spheres of influence, God has ordained a unique and independent authority structure. And we just went through those Three. So 1 Peter chapter 5 is very clear with regard to elders that God has ordained elders and those elders are accountable directly to Christ, the head of the church, for how they shepherd the flock of God. So Peter says, I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, According to the will of God, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So there's the command there for elders to shepherd the flock, and there is the 
accountability that comes with recognizing that the chief shepherd is the one to whom we ultimately report. So civil rulers then do not have the biblical or God-given right to dictate worship, doctrine, or polity for the church. Those categories belong within the sphere of the sacred, the spiritual, the ecclesiastical, which is outside the realm of civil and state matters. This principle then, number 22, has been understood within Protestant church history. It was also part of the founding principles of religious freedom in the United States. In fact, the founding fathers... uh, put into the Constitution and the Bill of Rights a separation between church and state. And although many on the secular side would argue that that was because they wanted to keep the church out of the state, the reality is they did that because they wanted to keep the state out of the church, which is a biblical way of thinking in terms of these two distinct spheres of authority. The state has no business interfering in the church. And, of course, in our country, that's been established even in our founding documents. All right, that brings us to a fourth principle in these foundational principles that we are working through. Our supreme allegiance belongs to Christ. The sovereign appointment of all government comes from God. And the spheres of authority that he established make a distinction between the state, the secular on the one side, and the sacred, the church, on the other side. So number four, the principle of secular animosity. As Christians, we should expect to suffer at the hands of those who are part of this world. This includes unbelieving rulers and civil authorities. In other words, as those who are followers of Christ, our expectation should be that we are going to be at odds with the state, not because we are criminals, but simply because we are Christians. Number 23, though God designed government to promote and protect good and to prevent and punish evil, fallen human government often does the opposite. In so doing, it reflects the corruption and antagonism of the world. I think it's interesting in Romans chapter 1, the very same book that includes Romans chapter 13, Paul goes into such a detailed discussion about the downward spiral of culture and society, and oftentimes government reflects that especially when that government is intended to reflect the will of the people. As the people become corrupt, the government grows increasingly corrupt. Though God, so number 24 here, throughout human history, civil government has been a primary persecutor of the people of God. And in fact, if you think through Uh, even biblical history, you will find many examples when it was civil government that was the primary agent of opposition and persecution against the people of God. So Pharaoh uh, being one example, the wicked kings of Judah and Israel being another example, the corrupt apostate religious leaders who crucified our Lord being another example, and then even into church history, the Roman government becomes one of the primary persecutors of Christianity in the first few centuries. And then we'll move into later medieval history. It's European 
sometimes in the name of Christ, Christian governments that are actually at odds with the true people of God. So government is often the tip of the spear in the persecution of God's people. The Lord Jesus warned his followers that they would be mistreated and persecuted by hostile government authorities. And he tells his disciples, look, they're going to haul you into the court and you need to uh, stand firm. Number 26, Jesus himself was falsely accused, unjustly treated, and ultimately executed by wicked government officials. And so our, our Lord himself was considered to be an enemy of the state. But despite being treated unjustly, Jesus did not respond with anger, malice, violence, or vengeance. He was submissive even in his suffering, and in this he left an example for us to follow. Believers then should expect to be persecuted by those in authority, not because of any wrongdoing, but simply because of their faithfulness to Christ. Uh, 1 Peter 4, 14 to 16 is a really helpful passage in this regard. Uh, In fact, that's, again, just two chapters after Peter said to be submissive to the government. In chapter 4, he says this, If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler, But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. So to suffer for Christ is noble, even if suffering for Christ means that you are an enemy of the state. Church history then is filled with examples of those who suffered and died for the sake of Christ. And I include Acts 5 there. Of course, the book of Acts is a book of church history. But I include Acts 5 there because it was there that the apostles considered it a joy. They counted themselves blessed to have been regarded as worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Passages like Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 then should be understood in terms of submission to the government in the face of persecution and suffering. Even when persecuted, believers do not respond with vengeance or violence. And on the next few slides, I'm actually going to work through uh, Romans 13. So if you have your Bible this morning, if you want to turn to Romans 13. uh, Romans 13, of course, is probably the most familiar text on this subject. But I think it's really important that we interpret it in a way that is according to sound hermeneutical principles. In the paragraph right before Romans 13, of course, there were no chapter divisions in Paul's original letter to the Romans, so his flow of thought continues right across the chapter break. You'll see that Paul's talking about how Christians are to respond to a hostile culture, and they are to respond to that hostility, Romans 12, 14, by blessing those who persecute you, bless and do not curse, 
Then a little bit later, he says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. He goes on to say, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. He goes on to talk about how we are to treat unbelievers in a kind way, even if they treat us harshly. So that's the immediate context flowing right into Romans chapter 13, which then brings us to the fifth of our five principles, which is the principle of submission. Submission in action, submission in attitude. And there are four key New Testament passages that provide this exhortation to Christians that we are to live submissively in response to the government. Romans 13, which is the passage that you'll, we'll be looking at a little bit more in depth here. 1 Timothy 2 is a passage where Paul tells believers to pray for those in government authority. Titus 3 is really a, a, a shortened, more succinct Uh, I would argue, summary of Romans 13 in Paul's letter to Titus for those on Crete. And 1 Peter chapter 2 is where Peter echoes these same truths in his letters to the believers in Cappadocia. All right. How are we to understand these passages? And again, I think these passages are the ones that believers are really wrestling with as they think through, okay, how am I to respond to the government when the government makes orders, issues orders, or makes regulations, or sets restrictions that uh, seem, um, seem to be contrary to practical wisdom or more specifically, to uh, Christian worship. And so I want to work through these passages a little bit using Romans 13 as our primary test case. So these passages need to be interpreted in light of the theological principles that have already been established. So for example, whatever it means to submit to the government, that cannot undermine or be contrary to the reality that our supreme allegiance is to Christ. Uh, Also needs to be interpreted in light of what we've already established with regard to spheres of authority, that whatever Romans 13 is referring to, it's referring to that area of jurisdiction or that sphere of authority in which government has authority, which is related to civil matters. So number 32, we say exactly that, um, that these passages must be understood in light of the principle of spheres of authority. The command to submit to civil rulers applies to the realm of secular matters and state affairs. So we don't submit to the governor of California, for example, when it comes to how we worship or what we believe or the way in which we do church. We submit to the governor of California when it comes to the area in which he has proper jurisdiction. So number 33, then, these passages should also be understood against the backdrop of the men who wrote them. Their meaning must be consistent with the examples of both Peter and Paul. And it is interesting to realize that Peter and Paul both engaged in acts of civil disobedience, 
Peter openly refused to stop preaching when he was ordered to do so by the Jewish leaders in Acts 4 and 5. He also escaped from prison on two occasions, which it's against the law to escape from prison. Um, And interestingly, in Acts 12, uh, when he escaped, uh, the guards who were guarding him were executed because he escaped. So just brings a little bit more sobriety, I guess, to that reality. Uh, Paul also uh, evaded civil authorities when he escaped from Damascus. Uh, He refused to comply with Philippian magistrates who asked him to leave their city secretly, and he said, no, indeed, and demanded that they come out and apologize to him. Uh, On multiple occasions, he was arrested and incarcerated. So the command to submit to the government, those commands have to be understood as being consistent with the examples of Peter and Paul, the men who wrote them. Both Peter and Paul were ultimately executed as enemies of the state, which makes it clear that it is not inherently wrong to be at odds with the government. It just depends on why you are at odds with the government. These passages should also be interpreted in keeping with the immediate context and the flow of the author's argument. And so Romans 13 is helpful in this regard. And I just want to establish a few principles from this text. Number 38 here, in keeping with the proper response to one's enemies, which we just saw in chapter 12 at the end, is to be peaceable and nonviolent, believers are to be submissive to government authorities. It is a general principle that within the realm of civil matters, believers are to obey, there's to seek to obey their civil rulers. So Romans 13, 1, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. And again, this is against the backdrop of what Paul just said in chapter 12. So rather than being vengeful or vitriolic or violent, you are to submit. You're to be peaceable, gentle, kind. You're not to be a revolutionary or a rebel. You're to be in submission, a good citizen. The reason believers submit to civil authority is because that authority is ordained by God. And we've already established this principle, but I wanted you to see it explicitly there in the text. Romans 13, 1, the second half of the verse, For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. When people resist civil authority in a sinful way, they are rebelling against the authority of God, and they will reap the consequences for that, primarily in the form of civil penalties, up to and including the possibility of capital punishment, which is why Paul says that the government does not bear the sword in vain. So whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, Paul writes in Romans 13, verse 2. God designed government to uphold good and to repress evil, And that purpose for government is articulated there in verses 3 and 4. Rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. If you want to have no fear of authority, do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. And Paul goes on to talk about how government is actually a minister of God, again, to protect and promote good and to prevent and to punish evil. So by being subject to civil authority, believers can 
avoid potential punishment, right? If you don't speed, you won't get a ticket. But also, you, and more importantly, Paul says, you keep a clear conscience both before God and before men. In fact, the Apostle Peter makes this point explicit that by doing good, you can silence the false allegations of unbelievers who might accuse Christians of being insurrectionists. So verse 5, therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of the wrath of the state, but also for conscience sake before the Lord. So it is right and necessary then for believers to pay taxes so that civil authorities can have the resources necessary to carry out their God-given duties, which is why verse 6, Paul says, pay your taxes. So for because of this, you also pay taxes for rulers are the servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Uh, I don't know how often when you listen to political talk radio, you think, oh, our leaders are the servants of God. Um, But they are, they are. And that's part of why we pray for our leaders. And it's also why we submit to them. When we submit to them, Again, within their proper jurisdiction, when we submit to them, we are submitting ultimately to the Lord Jesus. Believers then are to render to civil authorities the honor, deference, and tax that is rightly due to them. And again, this deference is limited to their God-given sphere of authority. So Paul goes on here in Romans 13 to say, Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. And the good behavior then that characterizes believers is grounded not in human legislation, but rather in the law of God. And Paul goes, excuse me, Paul goes on to make that point in verses 8 and following. Uh, he says, no, uh, owe no one anything. Uh, that's, that's a good financial principle, but it's not really about credit card debt. It's about taxes, right? So don't fall behind on your taxes, but instead uh, be known for being a good citizen who loves the people around them. And then he goes through the second half of the Ten Commandments in the following verses and talks about how love is the summary of the law. So this is all tied into a proper response to those in a hostile culture going all the way back to chapter 12. We don't respond with vengeance or violence. We respond with gentleness and graciousness. We're known for being good citizens. We're known for being submissive. And we're known for the love that we have for other people. So when believers react without vengeance or violence, but in love and righteousness, they shine like a bright light in a dark world, and it does have an evangelistic impact. And in fact, in Romans 11, excuse me, in Romans 13, 11 to 13, Paul goes on to talk about living as a bright light in a very dark world. And Peter makes the same point, 1 Peter 2, 13 to 15. Believers then are also instructed to pray for those in positions of authority. That's 1 Timothy 2. That's always convicting to me when I listen to political talk radio. Have I prayed for these people before I've criticized them? 48, both Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 point to the Lord Jesus as the ultimate example 
of how we are to conduct ourselves. In Romans 13, it ends by saying, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So he is our example, our model for how to interact with those in governing authority. 1 Peter 2, 21 to 25 explicitly says that we are to follow in his steps, and it gives him as the model for submitting to government. And that's instructive for us because when we look at Christ's example, we learn that he sometimes ignored non-biblical regulations imposed by the religious leaders. Mark 3 is about him healing a man on the Sabbath in violation of the Sabbath, which of course made the religious leaders very upset. Jesus permitted his disciples to disregard certain extra-biblical regulations like ceremonial hand-washings, which led to a confrontation again with the religious leaders in Mark chapter 7, where Jesus said, you've, you've elevated the traditions of man above the word of God. Uh, Jesus also defied temple authorities by cleansing the temple on two separate occasions, and he publicly rebuked the Jewish leaders for their corrupt leadership in Matthew 23. And at times when there was antagonism against him and it was not yet his time, Jesus actually hid himself in order to avoid being arrested. But when he was finally arrested, because his time had come in God's perfect timing, he did not resist, but suffered patiently even to the point of death. So Jesus did not hesitate to defy those regulations that were contrary to God's law or that created confusion regarding spiritual or sacred matters. And I would argue that his example in that is instructive for us and for our understanding of how to rightly submit to governing authority, since both Peter and Paul point to the Lord Jesus as our example for how to do that. Okay, so five principles, and that first half intentionally was a little longer than the second half, in case you're wondering if I'm going to go till 1015. I'll be done by at least 1014. <laughs> so, supreme allegiance, Christ is our highest authority. We must obey him, first and foremost. Sovereign appointment, no governing authority has authority other than by the express permission and sovereign decree of God. Spheres of authority, there's a distinction between the state and the church, and civil authority has jurisdiction within the secular or the state realm, but they do not have jurisdiction within the sacred or spiritual realm. Secular animosity, we should expect to be persecuted as followers of Christ, but it is only right for us to be persecuted as followers of Christ if the reason we're being persecuted is because we're being faithful followers of the Lord Jesus. And when it comes to civil matters, as Christians who want to be a good testimony to a watching world, we should seek to submit both in our attitude and in our action to those whom God has placed in authority above us. Right, so those are fundamental principles. Again, I don't think this is all that controversial, but let's go to our five biblical exceptions. 
All right. We have already noted that government's jurisdiction is limited to civil matters. That jurisdiction does not extend to sacred or spiritual matters. And God has, again, delegated that authority to pastors and elders within the context of the local church. But in civil matters, believers are to submit to the government, both in attitude and in action. Question is, does the Bible identify times when believers should disobey government mandates, even in civil matters? And I'm going to argue that the answer is yes, and that there are five categories of biblically accepted, for lack of a better term, civil disobedience. The first category is probably the one that comes to your mind first, and that is if the government commands you to do something wrong, you have the biblical right, in fact, you have the biblical mandate not to comply. So when a command from the government mandates that you do something that is wrong, then you are not to obey. So here are some examples. And with each of these uh, categories, I've tried to give biblical examples so that you can see places in Scripture where these exceptions were lived out. So as I thought, canonically through uh, biblical revelation, the first example that I could think of, maybe there's an earlier one, but the first example that I could think of was Joseph. Joseph was under the authority of his master. By extension, he was also under the authority of his master's wife. But when his master's wife tried to get him to commit fornication... Joseph actually says, no, I I cannot, I cannot sin against God in this way. And in the end, he gets thrown in jail because of this, but it's, of course, all part of God's sovereign plan for Joseph. But there's an example of Joseph rightly refusing because to comply would have been sinful. Another example Pharaoh ordered the Hebrew midwives to kill every Israelite baby boy. But the midwives feared God more than Pharaoh, it says in the text. And so they refused to obey. They did not murder the Hebrew male children. Another example. The king of Jericho. I thought it was really interesting when I went back and looked at Joshua chapter 2, that the order for Rahab to tell the soldiers where the Hebrew spies were hiding, that order actually came straight from the king of Jericho. So it was the king of Jericho who ordered Rahab to disclose the location of the Israelite spies, but Rahab feared the Lord more than she feared the king of Jericho, and so she refused to comply. In 1 Samuel chapter 22, Saul commanded his soldiers to kill all of the priests for reasons that uh, really expose the evil 
maniacal character of, of Saul, but his soldiers refused to comply, and they were right to refuse. More well-known story, Daniel chapter 3, when Nebuchadnezzar created the image and said everybody has to bow down before the image. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to comply. They were thrown into a fiery furnace because of their bold stand, but they were right to disobey. Herod ordered the Magi to come back and tell him where baby Jesus was. And, uh, of course, an angel of the Lord appeared to them in a dream, warned them about what Herod was trying to do, and so they disobeyed. They went straight back home another way and did not come and tell Herod where Jesus was. And even as we look to the future, in the book of Revelation, we see that the beast, the Antichrist, the false prophet, that they require the mark of the beast in order to even engage in commerce or to buy food, and true believers will refuse to take the mark of the beast. So you have in Scripture quite a number of examples of times where civil authority gave a command to do something wrong, and the response of believers was to disobey, and in disobeying, they were right to disobey. I do think it's important to point out that In refusing to comply to government officials, believers should be respectful and non-combative. Daniel chapter 1, I think, is a good example where Daniel and his friends are like, hey, we can't eat this food because it's food that is unclean. It was offered to idols. There's a bunch of reasons why we can't eat this. And so Daniel respectfully requests a different diet. And, of course, he was granted that request. 1 Peter 3.15 that when we give a defense, we do so with gentleness and reverence. So we're resolved, but we're also respectful. So that's one category of exception. A second category of exception is if the government commands you to stop doing what is right. So it's not just when they command you to start doing something wrong. It's also when they command you to stop doing something right. If the government commands you to stop doing what God has told you to do, then you are right to disregard that prohibition to continue obeying God rather than man. So some examples. Pharaoh tried to stop Moses from leading the Israelites out of Egypt, and Moses disobeyed Pharaoh in order to obey God. This is a really powerful example, I think, in Daniel chapter 6. It's a well-known example, Daniel in the lion's den. But there was the decree issued by Darius, Darius to uh, cease praying to anyone but him for a month. So there was a one-month ban put on prayer. So it was a temporal ban. Daniel totally, <coughs> excuse me, Daniel totally could have just, you know, prayed silently for a month. I think most evangelical American Christians would have been like, well, we'll just wait out the month. Not Daniel. (laughs) Daniel immediately goes, just as his custom was, into his room, opens all the windows, prays publicly, and of course is thrown into a a den of lions. But it was right for Daniel to disobey because the king's command was prohibiting him from doing what was right. In the book of Esther, the law of the Persians prohibited anyone from approaching the king without an invitation. Esther violates that prohibition 
because she knows that she needs an audience with the king in order to save her people. And of course, in that passage, she famously says, if I perish, I perish, but I'm going to break the law because this is the right thing to do. And so we see these examples in the New Testament or in the scripture. Those are Old Testament examples. Here's a New Testament example. Peter and the apostles were ordered to stop preaching about Jesus. That's Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 4 and 5. In fact, in Acts chapter 5, the high priest explicitly says, we gave you strict orders to stop preaching. And Peter's like, well, we must obey God rather than men. So when laws or orders are issued that prevent believers from fulfilling their God-given obligations, it is necessary for them to obey the Lord in violation to that government mandate. For example, if believers are commanded not to forsake meeting together regularly, uh, then if the government says you can't meet, then it's really incumbent on believers to meet anyway. Because to be part of a church, an ecclesia, an assembly, is to be part of the assembly of believers. Believers are commanded to sing in worship. So if the government issues an order that says no singing, uh, well, we have to sing because we're commanded to sing. And if Christians are commanded to fellowship in ways that require physical closeness, these are passages about the laying on of hands, the right hand of fellowship, even the holy kiss, the idea being that fellowship in the New Testament was something that required physical closeness. If the government puts in place regulations that say you can't get within six feet of anybody, well, how are we supposed to be faithful to these biblical commands um, unless we don't comply with the, with the state regulations? So, whoop, go back here. Historical examples, in addition to those biblical examples, would be, for example, the Church of the Catacombs, which was told not to meet, but they met anyway. William Tyndale, who was told not to translate, but he translated the Bible anyway. John Bunyan, who was told he couldn't preach, spent 12 years in prison because he refused to agree to stop preaching. Uh, I think of missionaries, even in closed countries today, who are told don't evangelize, and they break the law when they witness. But they're right to do so because it is appropriate to disobey a command from government that requires believers to stop doing what is right. Third category, appealing to higher authority. If a lesser governing authority contradicts or conflicts with a higher governing authority, believers are right to appeal to the higher authority. So most of these examples come from the Apostle Paul, but Paul refused to leave Philippi when asked to do so by local magistrates. He appealed to his right, his fundamental right as a Roman citizen. That's in Acts 16. Paul also avoided being flogged by a Roman centurion. He was about to get whipped, and he tells this Roman centurion, hey, you can't do this. I'm a Roman citizen. So again, he appeals to a higher authority and actually avoids punishment on that occasion in Acts 22. Paul appealed to the Roman governor Felix when he was falsely accused by the religious leaders. So he makes his appeal before the Roman governor because the Roman governor represented a higher level of civil authority than the uh, Jewish religious leaders. And ultimately, Paul appeals to Caesar when 
Festus and Agrippa are like, hey, we'll, we'll let you go back to Jerusalem and stand court before the Sanhedrin. And Paul's like, I think I want to go to Rome. So he appeals to Caesar. And of course, then they say, well, you've appealed to Caesar. So to Caesar, you will go. But these are examples of how it's right to appeal to a higher authority within the construct of whatever nation or country you live in, in order to, to contradict or to defend yourself against a lesser authority that is in conflict with that higher authority. A fourth category is the idea of confronting moral corruption. And what I mean by this is, well, you can see it there. If a governing authority openly violates the law of God, believers are right to condemn that wicked behavior. Being submissive does not necessitate remaining silent. So it is appropriate to condemn, even publicly, wicked, immoral behavior when civil leaders engage in that behavior. And you can see many examples of this. The prophet Nathan confronts David when David commits adultery. Elijah confronts Ahab when Ahab was leading Israel into idolatry, and then later he confronts Ahab again to the point where Ahab refers to Elijah as the the troubler of Israel. Uh, The prophet Jeremiah ends up getting thrown not only in jail, but ultimately in a well uh, because he refuses to give a good report about what's going to happen with international affairs at that time. He's like, no, Jerusalem's going to get conquered. And everybody's like, stop saying that. It's discouraging. And um, he's like, well, that's what's going to happen. And so his refusal to comply and to speak the truth uh, landed him in trouble. And then, you know, John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist is willing to publicly condemn Herod because Herod is committing adultery and incest. And when we look at passages like Hebrews chapter 11, we see that in the hall of faith, that the author of Hebrews commends these prophets because they were willing to speak out boldly against the corruption that existed in the civil context in which they lived. And uh, so it's right for us to do that same thing. And then final category is what I called freedom to flee but not to fight. Okay, I need to do a better job of naming my categories. But um, it's really interesting. I, I found it fascinating that the Bible makes it very clear that when believers are being persecuted by a hostile government, it is acceptable for them to flee and for them to hide. There's no biblical mandate for you to turn yourself in for being a Christian. However, once you are captured, you then respond in a way that does not become combative or violent or vitriolic. You are gracious and kind and gentle, even in persecution. So some examples, Jonathan ignored his father. Of course, his dad was Saul the king. So he ignored the king's order to kill David, and instead he helped David hide, and he's commended for that. David himself often fled from Saul. In fact, for one period of time, almost 18 months, he lives with the Philistines just to get away from Saul. And the Bible presents that as perfectly acceptable. 
Uh, Obadiah, who was uh, the steward of the house of Ahab, was a God-fearer, and he hid a hundred prophets from Jezebel because he didn't want Jezebel to kill the prophets of Yahweh. Uh, Judean officials encouraged Jeremiah and Baruch the scribe to hide from the wrath of King Jehoiakim. And uh, I didn't include it in here, but you even have Joseph and Mary being told by an angel to flee to Egypt in order to protect baby Jesus. So when believers disobey the government to obey God, they accept the consequences without violence, but the Bible allows believers to flee and hide, but when found, they are not to resist or respond with vitriol or violence. Okay, so those are the, the five categories of exception. If the Bible, excuse me, if the government commands you to do something wrong, you disobey. If the government commands you to stop doing what is right, you disobey. And then the other categories are a little bit more uh, obscure or, I guess, uh, implied. But um, you have the right to condemn moral um, immorality in the government. Uh, you have the right to flee. So that, coming back to that fifth one just for a second, the idea of an underground church is totally biblically acceptable. The idea that believers would meet in secret in order to avoid government persecution is something that we see uh, identified and taught in the scriptures. Okay, so coming full circle then, I want to bring this all back to the stand that our elders took a year ago when they issued that statement. And we're going to get, you can see here, we're going to get to our 95th thesis pretty quickly. <clears throat> so I'm trying to identify these application points by connecting them back to something that we've already established in terms of the principles or the exceptions that we've laid out. So one of our principles was the idea of spheres of authority. When civil authorities go beyond their biblical jurisdiction, we are right to ignore those stipulations that interfere with our worship, our doctrine, and our polity. And that really was the fundamental basis for that elder statement that Christ, not Caesar, is the head of the church, that Christ has given elders the responsibility to make determinations about how this flock of believers meets together for worship. And when the state oversteps and interferes, we don't abdicate our God-given responsibility to the state. Instead, we are right to say, no, this is not your jurisdiction. Your uh, regulations don't apply here. Uh, that is a biblically acceptable stand. In fact, I would argue it's a biblically necessary stand. Next, ideas that we have to, or the command to stop doing what is right, that we disobey the government when they command us to stop doing what is right. When civil authorities order us to stop doing that which the Bible commands, things like meeting regularly, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, singing, Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, and fellowshipping in ways that exemplify 
New Testament fellowship, we cannot comply with those prohibitions. And you'll see if you go back and read that elder statement that was issued a year ago, that this really is the primary basis for us saying no. The government says you can't meet. No, we are going to meet. The government says you can't sing. No, we are going to sing. The government says you can't get within six feet of one another. The answer is no, we're, we're not going to comply with that because in order to be faithful to what God has commanded us to do, we cannot comply with those restrictions. Appealing to a higher authority was that other category of exceptions. For Christians living in the United States, it is right for us to appeal to higher legal authorities. Our church did this as well, which is why we have the law, the legal case that's been ongoing for roughly about a year and is almost completely settled. And in appealing to that higher legal authority, in this case to the L.A. Superior Court, but also based on some Supreme Court decisions, which of course are based on constitutional guarantees like the First Amendment, uh, it turns out that we're being justified, in, even in the eyes of the law, with regard to the stand that our church took. And it was right for us to take that stand, not only for the reasons we've already mentioned, but also because in appealing to a higher authority, we're doing nothing other than what Paul himself did on numerous occasions. Confronting corruption when civil authorities exercise their authority in an unbiblical way, it is right for believers to rebuke them publicly and call them to repentance. And I think our pastor has been a prime example of having a prophetic voice on this issue and really calling out the politics of what's happened over the last 18 months and demonstrating that much of this is not really a health issue. It is a political issue. All right, three more. Uh, In terms of being a testimony, gospel light, we believe the best way our church could continue to be a beacon of truth and a light to the dark world around us is by continuing to meet. It fascinates me that there are churches that want to argue that they needed to stop meeting in order to be a good witness. Um, how is that? How can you be salt and light in the world if you're not meeting? It's amazing to me that uh, I remember uh, somebody saying, <clears throat> this was all the way back, I think, in March of 2020. They just made the point. Can you imagine a year ago if somebody had said that a year from now, every church in America will stop meeting <laughs> voluntarily? I mean, what an amazing ploy of Satan to get the church to shut down. How are we to be a witness in the world if we're not meeting? Our argument would be that actually to be a witness, we need to meet. And I realize some people would say, well, in order to love your neighbor, you need, you know, it was the love your neighbor uh, line that got used a lot, the second great commandment. I would say two things on that. Number one, the first great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that supersedes the second great commandment. Right, So if he commands us to meet for worship, we meet for worship. And then secondly, how do we love our neighbor? Is not their spiritual need a priority over the potential of a physical health issue? Uh, The answer to that is yes. Their spiritual need is the priority. 
And in order to be a gospel light, we were convinced we needed to meet. 93, freedom to flee. When civil authorities attempt to prevent the church from meeting, it is appropriate for believers to meet in secret, but it would not be right for believers to respond with anger or violence. And I included this point because you're all familiar with Grace Life Edmonton and James Coates. For a season, his church actually became an underground church, the Underground Church of Canada, meeting in undisclosed locations so that government officials couldn't find them. The question is, was he right to do that? And the answer biblically is yes. 94, willingness to suffer. Our elders were willing to accept the consequences for our actions. We were resolved to do so in a peaceable manner towards those in positions of civil authority. And I remember a year ago when that statement came out, our elder team didn't know how all of this was going to end. And there was a a soberness to it because you go, well, we're going to take a stand And like James Coates in Canada, it's possible that that stand is going to put us in jail. And then number 95, practicing the principles. These nonviolent, non-vitriolic actions do not violate Romans 13 or Titus 3 or 1 Timothy 2 or 1 Peter 2 about submission to the government. They are consistent with those passages, and that's what I've tried to show this morning. And so we desire to submit to governing authorities in civil matters, but our priority is to obey God rather than men. We say with Peter and John in Acts 4, when they were talking to the religious leaders, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about that which we have seen and heard. And then in Acts 5, the next time they got arrested, Peter said, we must obey God rather than men. Okay, that was a lot of information, but I hope it was helpful. And it is 9.59, so I, I kept my promise. You are dismissed. Thank you.